How fantastic were they? What a meaningful way to start the day. Thank you. That was great. Ryan, thank you not only for interning with Hope, thank you for introducing us. Um, Normally when I'm introduced, I'm introduced just by my Rwandan name, uh, which is Mzungu Chane Chane, which means the whitest of the white person. It's a much shorter introduction and entirely accurate. Um, How fun to be here with all of you. We have prospective students and we have the board of trustees. How amazing is that? Is Is the board really here? Fantastic. Um, Board, can I speak to you just for a minute? The board members? Where are the board members? There they are. Can I speak to you just real quickly, candidly? Whatever you're doing here, it's working. When I first arrived in Rwanda, uh, the person that uh, met me and ended up being my mentor for the first several months that I was living in Rwanda was a graduate of ENC named Rob Gailey. And Rob Gailey lived uh, in the home with his wife, Wanda, and became very much uh, so formative in the work that I do. Uh, It changed my life, and he was an ENC grad. Not only that, but right even before I started at Hope, I was doing graduate work, and I met another graduate of ENC whose name was Jesse Kasler. I hadn't even started working at Hope, but I heard this individual who was in love with Jesus, who was working uh, in, in, in the financial sector, incredibly competent. After having time with him in Cambridge Square at Old Bon Pan, I don't know what possessed me, but I said, Rob, I mean, uh, Jesse, will you work with Hope? I didn't even know if we had a budget to hire anyone. I didn't even know if we had any positions that we were hiring, but I met him and I said, would you come and work for Hope International. Not long after that, he was the very first employee that I got to hire and has walked with me and been my most trusted advisor, been my very special friend, and done more to build the organization of Hope International than anyone else. And he's another proud ENC grad. And then when we have interns coming here, So whatever is happening in this place, on this campus, I'm probably at least 12 years late in coming here and saying thank you to the board and thank you to the staff and thank you to all of the students that are here. Because my experience, without exception, is this is a remarkable place where God is at work touching hearts and this is a place where people are being equipped with very, very solid skills to go out and make an impact for Christ and his kingdom. Now, Corey, being the very encouraging person that he is, he said, you might not have 100% for the next you know, 30 ENC grads that, that you end up hiring, but I think he's wrong. I think I'm going to be 100% satisfied based on my previous experience. There's something special, and so if you only hear one thing, I want to be here and say thank you to this very special place that has impacted me and has impacted the ministry of Hope International more than any of you know. So this morning, I want to talk a little bit uh, about uh, a couple stories from around the world, from the travels that I've been able to do. And uh, we have some Rwandan students here. Is that right? People, students that grew up in Rwanda. Is that true? Fantastic. Um, but uh, Rwanda is another place that just absolutely wrecked my life for the ordinary. I graduated from Messiah College and worked at Lexington Christian Academy for a few years. I grew up uh, outside of Boston and Carlin. I have some wonderful friends here uh, that have known me from a very young age. I ended up uh, working in Cambodia for a short time and then ended up going to Rwanda. And as I arrived in Rwanda, I was embarrassed at how ignorant I was of the genocide. 
When I was in college and I was playing soccer and I was focused, I had no idea that the most systematic genocide the world had ever seen, that in 100 days over 800,000 individuals were murdered in this country, that I didn't even know where it was. I didn't know anything about the history. And so I got this job offer to go to Rwanda. And as I'm reading, I'm thinking, where was I? And as I thought back, I was fixated on the O.J. Simpson trial that was happening around the same time and so ignorant of what was happening in that place. But Rwanda became a place that wrecked me in so many ways. And one of the ways that it wrecked me is I had grown up in a church that had said the Bible is the inspired word of God. And I believe that. But somehow I missed how clear and compelling Scripture is when it doesn't request, but it commands us to care for the least of these. I don't know how I missed that growing up. But living in Rwanda for the very first time, as I opened Scripture, I read it with different eyes. I read it with eyes, not some theoretic, we should care for the poor, but I read it, we should care for my friends that are living all around me. And you read Scripture differently when you read it through the lens that is based in friendship. And as I was there, I I understood that if I understand what Christ has done for me, if I understand the forgiveness, if I understand that He traded all of the riches to come and be born in a manger, to die as a criminal on a cross so that I could have forgiveness, I could have eternal life. That fact, if it's true, has to change everything. And the people that need to know about that are the poor and the hurting and the broken. Scripture again and again is so clear that if we understand what Christ has done for us, we are going to be compelled to say, God, everything I have, it's merely a gift. How do we use what you've given us to make a difference for your name in seeing your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? And Rwanda was a place that taught me that, and I hope I never forget. But the other thing that Rwanda taught me is that I was completely, I completely misdiagnosed how to make what the problem was, and how to make a difference. And and so when I went to Rwanda, and just on this recent trip, I went to Rwanda, I was in a rural community, and I ended up being in a church and being part of the Hope Microfinance model. And and sitting there on one of the pews... um, uh, there was a woman who came in, and her name was Athanasi. And as she came in, uh, she had a cane. And she was a few minutes late. A meeting went on, but I, I became just interested in imagining what would life be like for Athanasi? What would life be like for a woman, 80 years old, a widow, living in Rwanda, living in poverty? And, and thinking about, again, in light of Scripture, this is a woman who checked all the boxes uh, she is a widow. We're to care for widows and orphans. She, she was uh, living in poverty. We're to care for the poor. Uh, she is a woman uh, who is blind and imagining what life would be like for her. Now, 20 years ago, if I had met Athanasi, my response would have been to reach in my pocket and to try and make a difference for Athanasi. It would have been to hear her story to define her as a poor, blind, Rwandan widow and to say, I've got to make a difference. And the difference that I would want to make is to reach in my pocket and give her something. But I've been spending enough time traveling around the world that I believe that love demands us to go beyond charity. That love demands us to do better 
than handouts. Love demands a different approach when we see and when our hearts are touched by the needs of the world. And this is based on a couple things. There's an individual who wrote a book called Toxic Charity. That, that there's this one part that was just amazing to me. But uh, he talks uh, about this, this initial desire. We all have this desire to do something. And I don't remember if, remember if, you, if you remember Live Aid. But Bob Geldof traveled around. He saw the needs. And what he said was something must be done. Anything must be done whether it works or not. But what Bob misses in this phrase is that sometimes it's possible for our good intentions to actually leave people worse off than they were before we arrived. And, and this is where this book from Bob Lupton, I found this so incredible. But you've might, you might have, have experienced this. But what he talks about is that when he initially would show up in a community of need, he would define their problem as lack of material resources, and he would pack his bags full and he would give it away What he found is the first time he showed up in that community, there was gratitude. But he said, you go back on the same trip the next year, and and it's not not appreciation, it's anticipation. You go back to that same community and have the same model of just giving things away, and you see expectation. You, You go back a fourth time, and you see entitlement. And you go back a fifth time, and you see dependency. And what happens is that dependency actually leaves people in a more helpless situation than they were before you arrived. Because their imagination of what is possible changes. It's actually possible to reinforce the chains of dependency which actually strengthen the bonds of poverty and leaves the situation worse off than if we'd never shown up in the first place. This isn't just Bob Lupton, but there's been a growing body of research by economists who have found the same thing. And and this one graph from from, uh, White Man's Burden by by Bill Easterly had this graph in it. And he shows that during the high point of philanthropy, international philanthropy, from 1970 to 2000, aid as a percentage of a country's growth uh, GDP dramatically increased. There was this massive flow of aid. And yet what he found is that in sub-Saharan Africa... Many places were actually worse off. Many places, corruption actually got worse. Many places, as Dambisa Moyo writes in her book, Dead Aid, many places took steps back. And when you look at the macro data, you find that many countries actually had negative growth rates during this period of heightened awareness, of heightened philanthropy. And the question is, As followers of Jesus, motivated by what we've received, motivated by love, the question is, can we do better? Can we do better? And so this is some of the things that I believe we've learned as, as, as a community of people eager to do good. I think we've learned a couple things. One, I think we have had our eyes wide open to the fact that sometimes we can make the situation worse. I think we've had our eyes open to the fact that we can treat symptoms And the symptoms never go away. We can treat symptoms without ever going to root causes. And and it's almost like we've been sitting at at a stream and seeing people in need floating down. And we've been trying to help them. And we've been trying to pull people out and help them without ever going upstream and saying, why are they falling in the river in the first place? And why aren't we focused more on building fences or, or helping communities learn how to swim or finding another way to do beyond just symptoms? The other thing that we've realized is that the church does a great job responding to relief, 
but it is much harder to get the church's attention to the underlying causes of poverty that exacerbate every time there's a crisis. It's ten times more, more, more easy to raise funds in the wake of a natural disaster than it is to focus attention on the daily disaster that impacts so much of our world. And the last thing is that it's possible in the wake of our good intentions to create dependency and erode the dignity that I believe that every individual is created with. Now, if those are the problems, what's the solution? And I think there's a growing wake of individuals that are asking the question, how can we change our approach? And for me, my approach changed when I was traveling in Moscow. I was an undergrad and participated in something called the International Business Institute. It was an incredible experience. But I was in Moscow and over a bowl of cabbage soup called borscht, sat down with this individual, and he heard about my interest in missions, and he heard about my interest in entrepreneurship and business, and he said, have you ever heard of microfinance? And at that point, I had never heard about it. But the more that he described this tool, the more I thought, that's what, that's what I was created to do. That's, that fits, that makes sense. It, 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 I, I saw you had uh, Dr. Perkins as a speaker not long ago, and I love his quote. He said, the world's best anti-poverty program is a job. And I had never made that simple connection before. The world's best anti-poverty program is a job. And so he started telling the story about Muhammad Yunus and how Muhammad Yunus had created this system to find individuals that wanted to have a job, wanted to take care of their families. They had the labor. They simply didn't have access to capital. And any economics course, you understand the necessity of capital and labor. And in places where labor was abundant, there simply wasn't a flow of capital. And so we created this system of microfinance where it would group people together. And and it would see them as a group. And yet it would recognize that every single one of them had dreams and aspirations and capacity. And so they gave individual loans to individuals who didn't have any credit history, didn't have any collateral... But they became a group, and they ended up standing up and saying, if your loan doesn't work, if your business fails, I'm going to step in and I'm going to repay for you. And so this simple model of using a social guarantee allowed capital to flow to people who had always wanted to have a job, always wanted to be an entrepreneur. This matched capital with labor, and it had a dramatic impact. And so what we've seen around the world is this simple model of microfinance. You do not meet individuals that have their heads down and their hand up. You meet individuals like Athanasi, who stands tall, who has her shoulders back, who is dreaming for the future. And when I met with Athanasi, she said, my kids, they're never going to see me beg. My kids are never going to see me beg because I'm going to provide for my family. She is a real, she's in real estate in rural Rwanda. She had built onto her house, and her house she ended up renting out. Uh, and she had big dreams for how she was going to continue to build homes and rent them out and address the housing issue in rural Rwanda. That is a flourishing entrepreneur, and you see it even though she is blind. You see it in her eyes. It is beautiful to hear those stories. And it's not just Athanasi, but having the privilege of walking with individuals in poverty, it is so much better than a pejorative approach that just says, we have a lot, you don't, 
So we're going to throw a little bit to you. That approach makes us feel morally superior and ends up actually reinforcing the root causes of poverty. And so whether it's Jean in Dominican Republic who was lecturing me on how to start a business and what was required in her community, or whether it is a pastor who ended up getting a loan so that he could have a clean water purification process so we could provide living water alongside clean water in his community as, as a profitable business, or whether it's a father that I met that for the first time said, I didn't even get uh, an eighth grade education and now my son is in college and he was sending his child to college, or whether it's Mama Atia who ended up having a smoked fish business and you should have these for lunch today, they're delicious, um, but she ended up having this business that was growing and thriving and she ended up taking four orphans in. And I never made the connection that orphan care, if you can help empower people in the local communities, that is a powerful form of orphan care. And so we have yet to find a place where there is not a need for access to capital and the deeper longing of the heart to have a reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ. We have yet to find a place where job creation and the hope of Jesus is not an incredibly powerful way to see lasting change and transformation. At the client level, we, we found this. We found that when we started working in Rwanda, 28% of school-aged kids were regularly attending school. After just two years, that number had increased to 71%. Never giving a school sponsorship, never having any tuition assistance. But if you help mom and dad, the primary beneficiary are always their kids. We found that before, a third of families were only eating one meal a day, and that was having health and nutritional impact on the kids. We found after two years, everyone was eating two, at least two meals a day. And we found that before, 65% of people were regularly attending church. But when the church shows up and helps moms and dads take care of their families, you better believe there is much more receptivity to the message that comes along with it in a beautiful way. And so we found that participation in church increased from 65 to 96%. We are dreaming big dreams. Over the next three years, we're trying to double the number of families served because there's an incredible opportunity as the church awakens to realize that we can do so much better than just stopping at handouts. I want to do just two final important points. One is that there's so much bad news in the news. Anyone else kind of feel tired of that? You know, one of the stories that I very rarely see reported is that within your lifetime, there has been the most dramatic decrease in global poverty in the history of the world. Anyone seen that as the headlines of the New York Times or Washington Post, it it has not made headlines. And yet I think it's the most incredible story. That in 1981, 52% of the world lived in extreme poverty, less than $1.25 per day. Fast forward 25 years in 2006, that number had been cut in half to 26%. Today, that number has decreased further to only 15%. And so we're starting to dream some crazy dreams. What if the church could be at the forefront of that movement to say 15% is still too high? 15% of the world that still can't put food on the table and still can't send their kids to school, that's still too high. What if we had the imagination to say within our lifetime, we want to see that absolutely obliterated, that every human on earth would have the ability to have their basic needs taken care of in an environment where hope is restored. 
The last thing that I want to uh, say is just a personal uh, issue. Many of you are going to go and you're going to do incredible acts of service. Many of you are going to do incredible acts of service in leading in your local church. Many of you are going to have outreach in your cities. Many of you are going to have an incredible impact on your families. Many of you are going to have an impact in the secular business world, in, in, in worship as you transform the marketplace. Many of you are going to have an impact on boards and on nonprofits and all of the good things. I believe that in this room, there's going to be an incredible number of people that are going to say, I'm in, I am all in, I want to be wrecked for the ordinary, I want my entire life, no matter what I do, if I fly planes, or if I am a teacher, or if I'm going somewhere else, I want to be wrecked for the ordinary, and I want to live a life of courageous faith, pointing people to Christ. I think there are going to be an incredible, incredible impact from this room. But what I hope we never forget What I hope we never forget is that our underlying motivation matters. Our underlying motivation of why we do what we do truly matters. This uh, happened to me um, when I was living in Rwanda. There was a volcano, Mount Nyiragongo, erupted. And I don't know if you've ever been on a live volcano. I had only seen National Geographic pictures I was living in Rwanda, and as this volcano erupted, lava poured out of the crater. And not just that, the ground literally opened up, and lava came pouring out. I I never even knew that was possible. It wasn't like this massive eruption. The ground literally opened up, and lava came pouring out, and it absolutely destroyed the town of Goma. I was living not far away, and due to just proximity and a willingness to to try and help, I ended up going and responding in this situation. And so took a, a quick leave of absence from the work in microfinance to go and try and help in this humanitarian disaster. I remember arriving at the border uh, with my car parked and seeing individuals carrying their most prized possessions, fleeing the destruction of the volcano and coming across the border from the Democratic Republic of Congo into Rwanda. thing that hit me is people are carrying their most prized possessions on their heads It was a couple pots and pans. It was a mattress. It was things that just struck me that that's what they valued most as they're fleeing their homes, never knowing if their home is going to be completely destroyed. And as they came into these uh, camps, there was an organization, an international response. And an international response was to group uh, individuals in different camps. And so we were assigned one of the camps. And as we were there, we had a group of churches that had uh, bonded together and had bought blankets because it was high elevation. It was the rainy season and people were cold and they hadn't been able to flee with adequate clothing. And it was really cold. And so we had these blankets that we had uh, amassed and we went to get ready to distribute them. And it turns out that CNN was following another shipment of blankets with one of the larger relief and development agencies. And they said, you can't hand out your blankets because when CNN arrives, it's not going to look as good a story if people already have blankets. And I thought, that's not right. That's not right that you are harming these people so you get to tell a better story. And I grew really bitter. I grew really bitter against the international relief and development because they were using individuals for their own marketing and their own fundraising. 
Now, it turns out CNN decided not to follow it. It was very quickly off the news. And so it turns out that we got to distribute our blankets. And so we ended up going and having uh, almost like a Disney park ride. We had uh, the lines up. We had the names of the people that were in the community that we were going to serve. And we had individual line up. And as we got to this point of finally being able to distribute our blankets, as we finally were there, I got to be on the platform. I got to be up there actually distributing the blankets. A friend of mine not far away uh, had a camera. And as he was doing this, uh, he made sure that I had the organization hat on. He made sure I had the organizational T-shirt on that we were serving with. And he started snapping pictures. And, and he found one individual that had just the right look. And he had that individual go through the line several times so he could capture the right look of need and response with me in the spotlight. When he ended up sending me these pictures, what they exposed is that in my own heart was exactly the same thing that I was criticizing the other organizations for. That in my heart, I was play-acting so that people far away at home could look at those pictures and could say, isn't that a good boy? So that people at my home church could say, noble actions of a 25-year-old relief worker. Isn't that great? Isn't Peter doing a good job? It was me, 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 disguised in the act of service. But it was all about having me at the center. As I looked at those pictures, there was a hypocrisy in my heart that I hope I never go back to that spot. Because what that does, whenever we are in the center, whenever we buy into the lie that we can change the world, that makes us think really good things about ourselves. It causes us to look down on others that we're serving and it absolutely undermines the credibility of the gospel and is not the example we see of Jesus that though he was God, he considered that nothing and took the very nature of a servant. And increasingly, I want the rest of my life to be about serving Jesus, but I want it to be done in such a way that the only person that gets credit, the only person who gets praise is my Lord and Savior who gave everything for us. And so as we think about that, sometimes we look at these pictures and we want to post them on social media. We want people to like us and to like the pictures. We think it's like we go to the beach and we're looking all good and we're looking all tan. And then we see the pictures and it looks like this. And that's what happens every time we try to make ourselves the center of the story. It's not about us. It truly isn't. We do not look as good as we think we do. But at the same time, I just want to be someone struggling in the water with everyone else and pointing to the lifeguard and saying, Jesus is the one who saves. I am a broken person like you, but look at Jesus. He is the one who saves. And so in your own journeys, I sure hope that there are different ways that we can try and and help. But I just want you to know I am thankful for this place. I am thankful for you. And I am cheering for you as you go and tackle some of the world's greatest problems in such a way where our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, gets all the glory. Thank you. Yes. 
There will be a, a Q&A with Peter in Hebrews Cafe at 11.30. He's actually lecturing at the Kennedy School at Harvard later today, so he'll be here for about an hour. If you want to uh, have some Q&A, there might be some food available. But I think it's just appropriate that we just pray for Peter, pray for Hope International, and that's how we'll conclude chapel. Will you pray with us this morning? Advance your kingdom through us, we pray, Lord, for your glory and for your honor. Thank you for the faithful witness of Peter and Hope International and all those that have been in his life that have advanced your kingdom in different ways, whether it's flying a plane or having a bowl of soup and talking about microfinancing. Thank you for the challenge you have placed in front of us and on our hearts and minds today. May we not be changed as we walk out of here today, Lord God. May your kingdom advance to everyone in this sanctuary, whether they realize it or not, or whether even they're thinking about it right now. Lord, I pray you advance your kingdom through their life. And thank you for the witness of Hope International and Peter and all that they've done. And the only way we can conclude this prayer and this time together, Lord, is to stand and sing together. Praise God.